I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Sushma Subramanian, a freelance journalist and associate professor of journalism at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia. Her writing on science and health has appeared in Slate, The Atlantic, Scientific American, and Discover. She has twice been a finalist for the Livingston Award for Young Journalists and was the winner of a Newswomen's Club of New York front page award. She is the author of the recently published book, How to Feel, The Science and Meaning of Touch, which is the subject of today's interview. So Sushma, welcome to Delving In. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a rather big question, I think, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty prominent in your book. How did you get interested in the topic of touch? Well, there's a story that I tell in the book about this time that I was working from home. I was a magazine freelancer and the, the top of my desk was kind of um, a little bit unstable. And so I was moving it around a little bit, trying to figure out what the problem was. And it made me think about what part of it was actually, like what part of what I was feeling was actually touch. Because I guess I wondered, was it the thing that I felt immediately on the surface of my skin? Did my muscles and that kind of tension have something to do with my sense of touch? And, you know, part of the reason I had this thought was just because I, I'm a science writer and I'm always looking for inspiration from everyday life to look for subjects. And so I'm used to thinking in that way. But it really made me think about how little I even knew about what touch is, which seems like such an elementary school kind of question. And then as I started Googling, um, I, I realized that, well, maybe it's not so basic because even scientists aren't quite sure or don't really agree on what the sense of touch is. Um, and from there, I started just asking more questions, questions about why, why some people don't like touch. Or I also had been reading about this field of science called haptics, where engineers are trying to recreate the sense of touch. And I just felt like there was so much rich material there. Well, that seems very fitting that a writer would get their inspiration from their desk. Yes, I spent a lot of time there. And and when we talk about touch, you, you mentioned that it's there's not a full agreement. And, and maybe that's because there's so many different kinds of, of touch sensations. So from your book, uh, you list pleasure, pain, itch, temperature, pressure, stretch, vibration. And you also mentioned that there are 30 different types of mechanoreceptors throughout the skin, and each one highly specialized like an individual musician in an orchestra, you know, sort of playing together to give the full experience. So that's so much more complicated in, in a way than, let's say, vision, even though vision is also very complicated in its own way. But I think there's an intuitive understanding of vision that there isn't of touch. It's so varied. Yeah. And that's because vision is pretty much just about one organ, whereas touch is spread out through the whole body. And so this question of what exactly is touch, the reason that scientists disagree is because it is just so vast. And so to, in order to study it, scientists just have different ways of kind of placing their own limits on it to kind of ask their own research questions. But of course, in day-to-day -day life, what we refer to as a sense of touch is really just driven by our definition of the senses that come from Western philosophy in general. 
So uh, the idea that we have five senses. And so we are thinking about touch culturally as well as scientifically. And, and one sense that I didn't mention is proprioception, which is the sense of where one's body parts are. So um, that would be very important in almost any kind of movement. And what's unusual about that one is that th there isn't usually a conscious perception of it. It's unconscious. So is it a sense if it's unconscious? And yet it, it has to be because it's providing crucial information. And we'll get to that later about uh, when we talk about what it would be like to lose that. One of the sort of strange things about that particular sensation is that it's it's there and yet it's not not there in consciousness. Right. And it's not one of the senses that we define as one of the five. So I guess the question is, would we think of it as a sixth sense or would we classify it as part of the sense of touch? And I guess I would say that if we had no sense of where our bodies were in space, which is pro proprioception, then what we touched on our skin would, would mean nothing. So I really think of the two as um, working together. And then, of course, you, you point up the close connection between touch and emotion. Uh, you both are called feelings, which is interesting. And you quote uh, Ashley Montague, who I guess wrote one of the first major books on touch called Touching the Human Significance of the Skin. And he goes through a whole bunch of examples in, in the English language involving touch or contact. For instance, people have to be handled carefully with kid gloves. Uh, some are thick-skinned, others are thin-skinned. Some get under one skin, while others remain only skin deep. Uh, things are either palpably or tangibly so or not. Some people are touchy, that is oversensitive or easily irritated. Others are out of touch or have lost their grip. The feel of a thing is important to us in more ways than one, and, the, and feeling for another embodies much of the kind of experience which we have ourselves undergone through the skin. A deeply felt experience is touching. Pleasure in a work of art gives us goose pimples. We say of some people that they are tactful and of others that they are tactless. That is either having or not having that delicate sense of what is fitting and proper in dealing with others. So there's just so many metaphors. Of course, there are metaphors, I think, for other senses too. Uh, I can really see what you're saying. I, I, I hear your pain. I mean, there's, there's all the senses have metaphors, but it seems that the touch seems to have more dealing with, with, with emotion. Right. And I guess the question is, are these, are these associations learned or is there something deeply innate about the way that we make this connection between touch and emotions? Because there are studies, for instance, that where you'll have a, a research subject holding a cold glass of water versus a warm cup of coffee and and then they'll be introduced to somebody and based on what they're they're holding they will think of that person's personality as cold or warm a lot of the the way that we even judge other people is about how we feel even just the temperature in the room matters so some of this is just inbuilt from early on we are with our parents for instance we feel what their emotions are when they are feeling anxious, we feel that that's shaky. And so the way that we uh, experience emotions to begin with and kind of classify them, it starts off as tactile. And of course, it's so important for babies to receive touch. Apparently, premature babies will die if they don't get touch. And uh, that's something that was discovered in 
uh, the nurses will make sure to 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 uh, hold the uh, premature babies and make sure that they get some of that uh, skin contact. And certainly, uh, it's it's the sense that's presumably well developed from birth. Right, right. Um, and it's kind of an assurance that there is someone else taking care of you when you're helpless as a baby. It's that belief that there is a, a nurturing figure there who will take care of you that gets expressed through the sense of touch that lets you turn off your survival mechanisms and do things like relax and grow and eat and all of that. And so if a premature baby is in an anxious state or believes that they're alone, don't have a nurturing figure, that prevents uh, their growth. And we talk about attachment, which is literally a form of touch. And if somebody is uh, anxious about attachment, they might be clinging, another form of touch. <laughs> So it's it's like you you can't get away away from it. Everywhere you look, there's there are more, uh, if not metaphors, than uh, you know, descriptors uh, that that have to do with touch. Right, clingy, or they might become detached. Mm-hmm. So another touch word. Mm-hmm. Then in your book, you talk about the history in the West of, of uh, elevating vision over touch. You mentioned Plato and you mentioned uh, the history of Christianity as two major influences that seem to disparage touch in favor of vision. Plato had this hierarchy of the senses, which sense was superior and which ones were inferior, and he ranked them. And touch was considered the lowest of the senses because it's so connected to the body. The things that the body is worried about is immediate survival, and also, also like lustful human concerns. Um, and touch, he believed, because it kind of operates at this remove, you look at things from a distance, and that provides a space for your mind to act instead. And so he thought that it was the most superior sense, vision. And it, and it was precisely that remove, that non-body um, kind of uh, definition of, of vision that made it so, so superior. And so he thought that vision was the reason, for example, that we are able to appreciate beauty. So that belief that touch is kind of dirty and uh, vision is pure or perhaps more intellectual, that made its way into um, Christian thought. A lot of a lot of lessons in Christianity from avoiding you know, lustful thoughts, right? That that comes from this belief. But also the way that Christianity has evolved over time, it used to be more embodied. The way people used to pray involved a lot more use of the body. So touching relics and bowing down and, and hugging other parishioners. And over time, as culture in general has become more touch averse, Christianity has evolved. Um, and so now the primary way that people pray is not embodied. It's about thinking about um, images of God in the mind. Of course, uh, communion involves uh, taste and, and, and texture, I would think. Right. So that is one tactile aspect um, of, of worship that has continued. So I was thinking that there's also a couple of other uh, factors here, and, and that's that uh, touch involves getting information about one's own body directly. 
So you're not just feeling things in the outside world, you're feeling what your stomach feels like and what your head feels like. And pain, of course, is, uh, is very much uh, in, in the touch arena. Uh, and then there's another difference in that, uh, and this is something that comes from J.J. Uh, Gibson, who was a uh, scientist of, uh, of perception, that he, he distinguished between perception and sensation. So perception would be uh, deriving the information from your senses, whereas sensation is what it feels like on the inside. So for example, you feel the roughness of sandpaper, you have the information about the texture of, of that uh, object, but you also have, have a feeling of what it's like on the skin. And it seems to me that that touch embodies those two aspects uh, very fully the feeling of what it's like in one's own body, and also the information about what's going on either in the outside world or, or even in, in in one's body. Whereas something like vision is a little bit less so. I mean, you can have a, a feeling of beauty when you see a sunset, but it seems to me that the emphasis is more on in getting information about the outside world. And maybe that's what Plato was getting at also, is that, you know, since he emphasized the the mind-body dualism, that he he somehow appreciated the purity of taking in the the objective world in some way. It is because touch is associated with the body and the body makes immediate decisions. If you feel sandpaper, you're immediately going to make a form of reaction to the feeling of sandpaper, and it's probably not going to be a positive reaction. So it's almost impossible to separate the sensation of the sandpaper from your reaction to it. Whereas with um, something that's visual, it seems like you have a little bit more time to process that. So the emotion that you have about a sunset is a little bit more removed from the, you know, just from the from the visual of it. And so, um, so yes, that was what Plato was definitely talking about. But that's also just an example of why we think of touch as so connected to our emotions right? Um, our emotions are visceral. And you make the fascinating point that touch is the only modality without a clearly associated art form. So vision, you have visual arts, hearing, you have music, taste, you have cuisine. Uh, you even have one that's just uh, smell and that's perfumery. Uh, and there isn't a, a really dedicated art form, although uh, in my youth, I, I did a kind of dance called contact improvisation which is done without music. And the only rule is that it's done usually with, with, with one other person and you're supposed to maintain a point of contact most of the time. So it's, it's very much of a touch and feeling kind of thing. The vision is very minor and it's usually done as a, almost like a meditation duet. And it's much more commonly done just for the experience, not as a performance for onlookers. That's really fascinating because some people will say that, well, yeah, touch does have an art form and that might be dance, you know, the feeling of the body or some forms of exercise. But so many of our forms of dance are really about the visual. Ballet, you're basically in pain in your body to, to create a beautiful visual for others. So it's really fascinating that we have certain forms of dance that are just about feeling. Although today we do have an art form that's developed around touch and that is the field of, of haptics. So for instance, like those people who are designing the 
buzzes on our phones and the way that they communicate with us. That That is a tactile art form. Yeah, and we'll get to that uh, a little bit later in the interview. I think that's another fascinating topic that you cover in your book. Um, let's talk first, though, about uh, the cultural differences. And this is something that you allude to a little bit, although um, I think most of your book is about Western culture, or in particular American culture. But you do, you do bring in some uh, non-Western cultures as well, having a, a very different feeling about touch and maybe um, a more welcoming uh, feeling about touch. There I'm using the word feeling. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's universally more welcoming. I think that all cultures exist on a continuum and there are certain aspects of touch that other cultures might embrace that we might repress. But I was making the comparison mostly to my Indian culture growing up. So there was this time when I was I was in sixth grade and I went to visit India for the first time for a long period. And I was there for four months. And of course, just life felt really different in India. And I hardly even noticed that. I mean, there was the, the heat and the humidity for sure, and not the universal air conditioning. So that was something that I obviously you know, noticed right away. But it wasn't until I came back to the US after that long period away, and I got home and I stepped onto my carpet when I, when I was home, and I felt like I was sinking into the ground. And I've never forgotten that feeling of just, it, it just felt so soft. And then I went into my bed and it was like, again, I was just like falling into it um, because I was used to a really hard cushion um, in India. And it was a very quick transition. It was like that time I noticed it and I tried to notice it again. And it just sort of that it went away because my American home just started to feel normal to me. But it made me think about how just the feelings of day-to-day -day life really shape your perceptions of the senses. So by comparison, Americans have, to use a feeling word, a cushy life. Yes, <laughs> it literally... yes, for sure. A very cushy life. But when I was in India, I didn't really notice that life was harder. But my body did notice. And it's, I guess, what's interesting to notice then is how does that change your perceptions of life, right? When your body is coming up against different things. Then I also started to sort of see the interpersonal relationships that were different. So yes, life in general was tougher um, in India, but the way that people interacted was really different. Like, so in American culture, it feels like the norm that parents and children for example, don't sleep in the same room, right? They have separate bedrooms. And in my Indian family, we all slept in the same room together. And it was a, a hard surface that we were on. We were not, you know, we were on the ground on a mat, but there was a warmth of being around others. And I think that there was also just more of a tactile relationship with older people when as a child, where there was more interpersonal distance, I think, that's encouraged for children in Western culture. But then with grownups, you know, what I notice in American culture is that people hug more. Like my, you know, my friend's parents, they kissed in front of me. And that is something that I would never see my own parents do. Uh-huh. More, more of a private uh, in some ways and less private in others. If we were talking about cultural differences and, and 
not only between different uh, different cultures, but also the cultural differences that are happening within American culture as time uh, passes. It seems that I'm not the only one to say this, but American culture is maybe the most individualistic in the whole world, and also probably the most litigious culture. And there's been, I think, a lot of fear about touching, even before the Me Too movement. I remember as a school psychologist, some teachers refusing to touch their kindergarten students for fear of a lawsuit. And it seems that uh, we're kind of losing touch, to use the metaphor again, with the need for touch, uh, for, for health and for psychological well-being. So our, our move away from touch involves so many different components that I kind of want to break down. And the first is just industrialization has changed a lot of our relationship with touch. So think back when we have had a more communal society. We lived in small towns that were agrarian and everybody knew every everybody else in that small town. And so there was probably a lot more interpersonal touch. Then we moved into cities surrounded by strangers for the most part. And there was a lot more need for interpersonal distance. People were in close quarters with people they didn't know, that they didn't feel close to. And so a whole different set of manners arose around that, that really was all about respecting other people's boundaries. So that happened. And then in American culture, over time, technology has been another component that's made us more distant from each other. So we just, the more that we communicate through phones and then through social media, the less need there is for being in person with each other. And so that has shifted our beliefs about who we can touch over time. The issue of the lawsuits is an entirely different thing because ever since the 70s, I would say, there's been a lot more discussion about the prevalence of abuse in society, abuse against women and children. And so that has made us all have important questions uh, or important discussions about when it's appropriate to touch other people. And I would say that we've had a simplistic response when it comes to that issue, because our reaction has just been, okay, well, let's just not touch touch each other and then we can avoid lawsuits. While it maybe has helped to some extent to avoid lawsuits, I don't know that it's helped us to have maybe a more important educational moment where we can talk about how abuse happens. And it's really something that happens in the mind before it's ever related to the body. And in most cases, and I don't know that we've done a good job of really teaching people that. Instead, we've kind of had this very reactionary attitude towards touch. Can you explain what you mean by it happens in the mind first? Right. Well, if you talk to to people who develop school policies uh, around these issues of, of abuse, they'll often say that if there's a teacher-student relationship, for example, that's inappropriate, it usually doesn't start off with an inappropriate touch. It's usually something that starts with a, a casual comment here and then a slow development of an inappropriate relationship that eventually results in inappropriate touch. But there are a lot of steps before we reach the point of touch. And at that point, someone's guard might be down regarding that inappropriate touch. And so 
I don't know that these rules about not touching students or something really prevents, say, say an abusive teacher from 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 doing this because uh, because there is just a lot more. There's a lot more interpersonal dynamics involved. Yeah, that makes it much harder to train for. I would think also, if you, you can't boil it down to rules, you know, whether it's with a teacher or with a clergy person or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Okay, well, this is a huge topic. We probably could spend the rest of the hour talking about it, but I'd like to, to move on and talk about Ian Waterman, uh, a man who lost large aspects of his sense of touch. I, I, I found it really fascinating, and also I was very impressed that you tracked him down and met him. <laughs> That's, that makes it very <laughs> personal. So t- tell us about Ian Waterman and what happened to him. Yeah, so Ian Waterman was a man in his late teens who developed flu symptoms. And then he went to the hospital and realized that he had lost the feeling in his body. And scientists or his doctors really didn't know what was going on with him at first. And it took them a while to figure out that when his immune system um, was reacting to the virus, it also attacked his touch sensors. And so he no longer has the feeling of most types of touch in his body, but he's also missing proprioception. So he had no idea of where his body is in space. And he is really amazing because he was able to retrain himself to do kind of basic tasks without using touch. And so he would teach himself kind of like a robot to move. Like he would tell himself, these are the muscles that you need to tense to sit up. And uh, this is how you need to keep holding them in order to stay up, right? These things that we do automatically, we don't have to think about. He has to consciously control them. And so he learned how to walk. He even learned, he was teaching himself how to do marquetry, you know, that uh, form of art where you use wood tiles to create an image. So he really uh, took on his loss of touch and proprioception as a challenge. Although with age, as he's had less energy, some of some of that ability has gone away. Yes, because it takes enormous energy and, of, and concentration to do what he does. And, and I imagine that he had to use vision to kind of check where he was. Right. So, I mean, if I'm remembering right, if he if he closed his eyes, he would not be able to even stand up. Yeah. Right. Yes. And so, like, even in the shower, for instance, um, well, he has a lot of a lot of accommodations in his house. But in the shower, he has bars around the shower um, so that he can hold on to them so he doesn't lose balance. And he kind of has to try to keep one eye open (laughs) so he can see where his body is so he doesn't look lose track of it and fall down. And and does he uh, fall frequently anyway? I mean, or, or he's sort of gotten past that? Yeah, he's gotten past that for the most part. He just has to stay really vigilant. And it's mostly that he tries to create situations where he doesn't have to think about it too much. So if he's, for instance, sitting down in a chair, he never just perches on the corner of the chair. He sits all the way back. And that way he doesn't need to think so much about where his body is and he can focus on where his hands are and what they have to do instead. But I really 
through the process of talking to him, try to imagine what it was like to be in his body. And it, really, I kind of got exhausted thinking about it after a while because there is just so much he has to think about that we do automatically. And I think our, he's married. And if so, did you have a chance to talk to his, his wife? Yes. Mm -hmm. I talked to them both. And what was it like for her to ha have a husband with this kind of disability, of this kind? I mean, this is such a rare disability. Right. Well, it was a big learning process for her. Um, so there is this time early on in their relationship where she got kind of upset because they would make plans to go on road trips or whatever. And he would always ask her to get out and get the gas. <laughs> and she was like, well, why do I always have to do it? And at that point, she didn't fully understand what his disability was. Because he, he wasn't open about it at the beginning. Well, he was sort of open about it because at that point he had been written about. There was a BBC documentary about him. And so he was like, I have this rare disability. Just read about it. He was kind of exhausted by talking about it. Um, and so he suggested that she go do that. But then she just was like, well, I'm not going to watch that at first. I want to be able to observe him and figure out what he can and can't do. But the thing was, and this is a reaction that Ian gets a lot from people, is that he's so good at faking it, right? Or covering up his disability that she had no idea how serious it was. And then there was a time a few months in where he got sick. And when Ian was not at his 100% able to overcompensate for his disability, it became impossible for him to even hold up a cup of tea. And that was when she had that this aha moment of, oh, this is how serious um, his disability is. Since then, they've just they've just adjusted. Yeah, I, I think he's probably among the very few people who become totally famous uh, uh, as a research subject. Another one that's quite different is H.M., uh, who uh, had no capacity to form new memories and you know what that would mean for a person. And he was studied by you know, probably dozens, if not hundreds of people. And the same for, for Ian Waterman. And Ian isn't the only person who has disability. There aren't very many people who've had it. But what does make him really unique is how much he's been able to teach himself to do without proprioception and touch. And that is really remarkable. Which is in a way uh, learning what the boundaries are of what's possible, you know, for, for a human being. Yeah. So an, another uh, subject that you talked about, I don't know that you met her is uh, Alicia Elba Williams. I did. Yes, did. we met. And you, you talk about the synesthesia between touch and emotion and synesthesia is a uh, the word for uh, kind of cross-wiring of sensory modalities, although in this case, it's not necessarily, a, it's a, a one sensory modality with a whole range of uh, capacity for, for emotional kind of feeling. So tell us about her and, and what she tells us about us. So Alicia makes really strong connections. And actually, let me go back and, and, explain how she discovered this about herself <laughs> to start with. Um, so she was a college student and she was talking to people about synesthesia. I, it was probably a situation where somebody had learned about in class and then they realized all the different ways that our senses cross over into one another. And she was in this room of people and talking to them about how touch and emotion are so connected for her to her. 
And one of the people she was talking to was a student who worked in a very famous lab that investigate synesthesia. And he was like, how about you come in so we can look into this? Because he'd never heard of touch emotion synesthesia before. And so she went into the lab and they, they would have her touch things with different textures and she would describe the emotion that she was having. And so she would touch like jeans, I remember specifically made her feel self-loathing, but silk would make her feel absolutely blissful. To the point where she would, for, you know, if she was having a bad day, if she touched silk, her day was immediately better. And so what these researchers noticed was that not only was she having a very strong uh, emotional reaction to the things that she touched, but also these connections were not intuitive. I think for most of us, genes don't really cause self-loathing. Um, I'm actually somebody who um, loves wearing jeans. I know that a lot of people during the pandemic really uh, started to prefer sweatpants instead and refer to jeans as as hard pants. <laughs> but but I don't think any of the hard pant people would even right say that they connected it to self-loathing. And then they brought her in several months later and she was describing these exact same sensations. Um, and so they knew that her response was consistent. There was only one other person um, they studied for this uh, research project, and they were the two two of the first patients who were identified to have touch emotion synesthesia. And so what does this say about the rest of us? Well, it shows us the ways that touch and emotion are so connected. So even though we might not have as strong reactions as she has, and even though some of the reactions she has are unrelated to our emotions when we experience certain things that we touch, I think that a lot of us don't really realize how much of what we feel physically on our bodies really affects our emotions. So we might downplay it because we just don't even, we don't feel that heightened sense of emotion that she has. And that's something that if you do take the time to notice how the feeling of a room affects your mental state, you start to realize that, well, maybe we're not so different from Alicia and maybe it impacts us far more than we admit. Yeah, I was wondering when, as I was reading that, if if we're talking about cross wiring, or if instead we're talking about a kind of lack of a filter in a sense. I mean, a, a part of what happens with uh, normal development is that the so-called higher parts of the brain, the, the cortex, and so on, inhibits reactions that we might have had as a child. So we we tend to not react with as much abandon, so to speak, as, as a young child. And that maybe something in, in Alicia didn't happen in her development and she didn't have that filter and she had the full-blown reaction to her associations. But the other part that's, that's so fascinating is that the associations were stable, which I think probably is not as much the case uh, with, with children. But it, it seems to me that, that it, it, there's implications about de normal development, and that's uh, ra rather than just cross-wiring. That's, that's basically what I wanted to say about that. And that is one idea behind why, why some people have a synesthesia. It's also a lack of, de of development in some very sp specific way. Well, a lack of pruning. Pruning, um, yeah. Yeah. Initially, when we're born, 
we have a kind of sensory soup, right? All of the emotion or all of our um, senses are connected to each other. And then as we grow older, there is some pruning of those connections. So we just keep the ones that are useful to us. And so, you know, one idea behind synesthesia is that it's just this lack of pruning that occurs. Kind of an overconnection. Yeah. And, and then you also mentioned about the mirror system, which is another kind of, it's not synesthesia within a single person, but almost as if it's uh, bringing another person into the picture. Uh, I think most of the, the research about uh, mirror, the mirror system is like watching an athlete and the same uh, m motor patterns in the athlete's brain is, is in a sense replicated in the viewer's brain. But I think with the, when you're talking about it in your book, you're talking about the mirror system with emotion. For someone who's extremely empathic, they start to feel the same emotion that, that they're seeing expressed in the other person. Right. And that is actually a form of synesthesia that's gotten more attention, mirror touch synesthesia, where you start to feel what other people feel and really can't kind of experience yourself as separate from others. And with this last uh, third of the show, I'd like to talk about the trends uh, technologically in, in the West and in America in particular about screen time and less physical contact and the impact on our health and well-being. Before we do, though, I wanted to just quote from your quote of John Watson, perhaps the first behavioral psychologist, in his 1928 manual, Psychological Care of Infants and Childs. He urged parents to start training children early on for a world that would not conform to them if children are crying, let them work it out on their own. Don't hug them. Don't kiss them. If you must, shake hands with them in the morning. Quote, when you are tempted to pet your child, remember that mother love is a dangerous instrument. Too much hugging and coddling could make infancy unhappy, adolescence a nightmare, even warp the child so much that he might grow up unfit for marriage. Now, unfortunately, I think we've moved way beyond that <laughs> culturally. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> But they, there are little vestiges of it that still exist, I think, uh, in certain subcultures uh, in the West. Not just a, a lack of appreciation for touch, but a real denigration of it and a total lack of understanding of, of the need for it in, in children, let alone adults. Right, absolutely. And this goes directly to your interest in attachment theory. Yeah, so attachment theory being the, I think it's become a kind of dominant theory. It started with John Watson, in, uh, a British psychoanalyst, who came up with the idea that to understand the relationship between mothers and their infants, it might actually be helpful to watch them and to see what actually happens rather than relying on the uh, adult patient's recollection of their infancy, <laughs> which you know, to, to our ears now sounds totally ludicrous. I mean, how do you even remember your infancy? But the early analysts thought that uh, the memory isn't the important thing, it's the representation of that memory. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's what you believe is true. That's going to affect your mental health. But he thought, no, actually what you consciously remember is not necessarily the thing. And he studied uh, infants and, and, and mothers and noticed that the infants that were securely attached to their parent, I'll, I'll use the word mother because it usually was the mother back then and still is, I think, the primary parent in most cases. And he noticed that there were different styles of attachment, uh, that uh, different styles of, of insecure attachment. And it became a whole, uh, a whole field. He's been totally exonerated. And uh, it's become, I think, maybe the dominant model, not just in psychoanalysis, but in, in clinical psychology in general. So 
uh, I think the, the thing that's about attachment theory is that it's not just infancy and it affects how people will behave in intimate relationships and their, whether it's a, a formal marriage or not. And it's, it seems that it's pretty much of a universal need, although not everyone is able to tolerate that need depending on what they've experienced before, if, they've, if there's been trauma or loss. And I guess it's arguable that that form of, uh, um, or the parenting style that you were just describing, shake hands with your child in the morning, that could possibly be traumatic and affect attachment through life. So when we're talking about the the um, rise of the computer age, I mean, during this uh, very prolonged pandemic, people are needing to rely on Zooming more than ever before. And it's in many ways fortunate that that technology came of age just to, just in time, but it's not quite the same thing as touch. And you you uh, include a very charming description of your exploration of what we talked about earlier about haptic technology. So we have in our computer age we have really good visual. The screens are sharper than ever, and the sound is really clear. But how do you touch the person through a screen? And you know, people make jokes about, well, I'll just hear, would you like to taste the food I just made? But it, but it turns out that there is research on what's called haptic, which is Greek for grasp, sense, or perceive, but it's it's really has to do with touch. And the, the last part of your book, uh, well, I shouldn't say the last part, but one of the, the later chapters talks about haptic technology and how it's being introduced to computers that that uh, it's not just going to be from uh, Brave New World with people attending uh, the feelies instead of movies, but it may enter our everyday life. And so, t tell us about your research into that. And you you met some of the uh, I guess the leading researchers who are developing this technology. Yes, I did. And and I just want to say because people have asked me before, a lot of this technology is not available for us to purchase yet. It's something that's just being. Lord in labs than I that I was able to experience because I went to haptics conferences. Um, but I was able to experiment with a haptic enabled smartphone. I asked someone to help me create this software that would help me communicate through touch with my then fiance because we were living in different cities. And so what would happen is basically I would put my finger down on this screen and he would be able to feel the image of my finger on his screen. And it was so funny when we tried this out because at first I was doing this experiment with the software engineer um, who was helping me do this. And I was doing, like I tried this out with him and I'd never met him before. We had just heard each other's voices on the phone to talk about this. And I was touching his finger and I was sort of like, ew, this is so gross, <laughs> you know? Um, and I had a lot of the same emotions as I would if as that that I would have if I were touching an actual stranger's finger in person. But then I did this with my then fiance, who I know very well. And it felt kind of romantic, you know? So we had this moment where I put my finger down on the screen and he could feel it. And so then I I moved my finger away and he kind of followed it. And then I darted away again and he tried to catch it. And then he kind of like, he, I let him catch me and it was really like flirting. So there was a kind of intimacy to it, strangely enough. 
Yes. And I think it, it, it was a way that it was using a different sense that kind of clicked my brain into this different kind of experience with him because I had been used to experiencing my fiance at a distance in a certain way, you know, mostly just talking about our days in different places and just being able to touch him in a different way. It kind of unlocked these emotions that I hadn't, hadn't had towards him in a really long time. So what you were experiencing with the fingers is actually, in a way, what happens in contact improvisational dance. I mean, you, often the first thing that the teacher suggests doing is that people pair up and just push their hand against each other and just feel the, the pressure and who's initiating movement and who's responding to the movement. And I think that's something that maybe is more having to do with touch than it does with other senses. Because when you're having a conversation, usually one person speaks at a time if you want <laughs> if you want to be able to communicate easily. But with something like a, a, a contact improvisational dance or the kind of touch you're, you're uh, describing, there's a much more of a mutuality and a, a give and take in terms of initiation and response. And maybe that's part, part of what feels intimate about it. Definitely. You know, I've, I've definitely heard of this form of dance before in doing this research, and I wanted to try it, but I don't think it's something that my husband would actually <laughs> do. So, and I'm not, I'm still not the most comfortable with having that kind of contact with strangers. So I guess there's that, that's my limitation. <laughs> right, right. So speaking of contact with strangers, you, you talk uh, at length about professional cuddling. It's something I had read about in the New York Times. I mean, being in a small town of Las Cruces, New Mexico, I don't think there's much of a, of a uh, presence of that. But apparently it's been around for several years in the bigger cities. I, I have to admit that it was uh, an idea that brings some uncomfortable feelings for me to imagine <laughs> what that is. But to tell us what about professional cuddling and w what it's doing for people. It's basically like seeing a massage therapist except that the professional cuddler is less focused on kind of getting the knots out of your muscles and all of that and instead is hugging you, embracing you, lying down with you, and just cuddling with you. What's interesting about it is this, it turns a lot of people off, this concept of hiring a professional cuddler. And I think that the connection people make most is to it being somewhat like sex work because you're having this incredibly intimate experience with somebody else. But then you sort of also want to think about why, why it is that we have this strong reaction. Because the truth is, we've talked about touch getting to be less and less common. And so if you're not in a partnered relationship, it's often very hard to receive that comforting contact from somebody else that people do often crave. And so when there is a scarcity in life, people find a way to compensate for it. And, and often that's through a commercial service. And so that's what these cuddling services are, are providing. Yeah, it's, it's in a way kind of sad that it would be needed. And we've all been reading about these trends that there are more and more people living alone than ever before, more and more people not coupling up than ever before. And there is a kind of isolation and you know, particularly for men, I mean, men are, there's much more of a taboo on male affection toward, toward other men than there is for women. And, and also 
not just physical touch, but even emotional support and even friendships. That it's very common for men to have no friends other than their spouse, for instance. Whereas I think that's probably pretty rare on the other side for for women. Right, and women, I think, are it's more socially acceptable for women to touch each other, right? Less socially acceptable for men to touch each other. It's not like touch has to be a rare resource in society, but it has become that way. And so when we, you know, we marginalize certain forms of touching or touching between certain types of people, then it seems wrong to also shame people for seeking out the touch that society denies them. And I think in some settings, it's done as a kind of a cuddle party. So in a group setting, I guess if it's a party, it's probably not for pay. I guess the part that sounds kind of dangerous to me is when it's uh, done one-on-one and some isolated place, uh, it's not a very w- well regulated at all yet. So, you know, I don't think there's any kind of licensure or, or I'm not, I don't think there are official guidelines. Well, I guess there are gu- guidelines within each company. There's some training that goes into professional cuddling. So I think it's really important to ask the cuddler um, about the experience that they've had, what kind of training has gone into it. And yes, you're absolutely right that it's unregulated. There are also other areas in society where there can be, you know, there was interpersonal contact that's one-on-one that can be somewhat risky. So I don't want to single out the professional cuddling community in that. In some ways, people who choose to be professional cuddlers, they receive more training than most of us on what it means to listen to someone else's bodily needs and um, and also their autonomy and when they want to be connected and in what ways. And a good professional cuddler will have those conversations before even beginning a session. Right. And a good professional cuddler will be, in a sense, a kind of therapist because it's not just supplying a need, but it might be helping the person get past uh, inhibitions so that they can then go out and, and get the kind of contact they need. And that would be a, a best case scenario. Exactly. And and I met a professional cuddler who actually works with psychologists. So the psychologist will recommend patients to her who might need some of that, I guess, tactile form of therapy. You remember years and years ago, I, I saw a movie called uh, Private Practices, which was about a sexual surrogate. So that's not cuddling, obviously. But she was, you know, very serious professional. And it, it um, without getting terribly graphic, I mean, it, it, it followed two men that she worked with, uh, one of whom had a sexual dysfunction and the other of whom was completely uncomfortable in his own body. And it showed her work with them. And it was really, really, really fascinating. Very, very moving, actually. I I haven't seen this movie, but it's interesting that that has been um, talked about in the public. And here we're talking about sex, which you'd think would be more intimate for people than touching. But it's actually almost the the cuddling that seems more taboo in our society. Well, that's that's a really tr- troubling thought. But, uh, you know, I, and I think there are a lot of people, especially men, who uh, kind of separate the uh, affectionate aspect of touching from the sexual. And, and there's, I would think, a kind of emptiness after a while with uh, that kind of separation. Well, with the last few minutes, maybe, uh, I mean, this is not as profound a topic, but to, to get back to haptic technology, I mean, one of the things that's going to drive that, of course, is advertising. People are going to be fascinated by uh, being able to touch the items that they might want to buy. <laughs> you know, so you mentioned about, uh, you know, silk versus uh, sandpaper. 
or uh, versus denim. If you could feel the uh, the pillowcase or in the sheets before you buy them online, I mean that's going to really be an enormous even even if it's only a very approximate kind of thing. And 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 you do mention that uh, haptics as as a modality in on a screen is probably never going to be as good as the visual visual or auditory, and partly because it's only going to be able to deal with probably fingertips <laughs> rather than the whole body. It's, technology seems like magic as it is, but the idea of being able to touch a touch screen and feel a difference of texture is really totally amazing. And I, I guess it's you, you mentioned in the book that it's a kind of a, a haptic illusion that's creating that. I mean, you, the screen itself is not changing uh, its uh, texture. Yeah, the texture wouldn't be changing. It's actually the same type of illusion that I was using when when I was using that app with my then fiance. But it's basically a pattern of vibration that occurs on the surface of a screen that gives you the feeling of texture. But it's really interesting to think about that historically too. Because currently when we buy things, most of us buy a lot of what we get online and we are relying primarily on the visual. But uh, if you think back, like the store was a place where you could kind of experience a, ha a, a tactile museum almost. You can kind of go through a department store and see pretty things and then feel them. And there aren't many places in life where that's possible. Because if you think about an actual museum, you can't usually feel any of the artifacts. That's discouraged, except there are certain, I guess, please touch parts of museums now. and Right, or, or kids, kids museums, yeah. Or kids museums that are tactile. There's like a touch museum specifically for children on the East Coast. Being able to do that online, we would be able to have that kind of exploratory experience of shopping that's been somewhat missing for uh, for years. With the tremendous hunger that we have for touch because of the way our culture is moving, it's there's going to be some compensation to some extent technologically. I don't think it can ever replace it, but it, it certainly has a chance of really helping online experiences be more embodied than before. Yeah. And I don't think it's about replacement necessarily. I think a lot of this technology, it is about creating a richer online universe. And um, and actually the incorporation of touch, I will say, also scares people somewhat. Because if you're thinking about the metaverse, that's a world that it incorporates currently just sound and sight. But if you also are able to experience the touch in the online world, it feels a lot more real to you. And there's a risk that you could get so caught up in it that you lose touch with your actual life, right? So that's another risk or, or worry that people have about incorporating touch into your online experiences. But it does make a richer experience. But I would say it's also important to remember that touch is important in in day-to-day -day life as well, in your immediate life. And there are ways that, for example, when I was using that tactile device, I did start to appreciate touch more and the daily sensation. So hopefully that is something that also happens. Well, Sushma, unfortunately, we're out of time for, for today, but uh, thank you so much for coming on, uh, Sushma Subramanian. 
a, a freelance journalist and associate professor at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, author of the book, How to Feel the Science and Meaning of Touch. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.